If you work as a healthcare provider, like a doctor or a nurse, there's new scientific evidence that exercising this one skill can be the antidote for burnout. And get this, 40 seconds of it can save the life of a patient. It comes down to one word, compassion. The future of work isn't about shareholder value, technology, metrics, or automation. It's about being human and putting people first through actionable love. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast, where we hold deep conversations with extraordinary people to help you grow as a leader and expand your business. Here's your host, Marcel Schwantes. From our studios in Chattanooga, Tennessee, welcome to another episode of the Love in Action podcast, now heard in 120 countries around the world. Glad you're here. This is the show where we chat with the world's most brilliant thinkers and experts about transforming your workplaces and growing your business through the business principles of love and care. And love and action in the context of today's episode is about something we've covered a few times before, and that's compassion. You know, we like this topic on the show. We just can't get enough of it. We had research scientist Dr. Monica Werlein, as you recall, a few weeks back. And today, it's my privilege to bring Dr. Stephen Treziak on the show to talk about compassion specifically in healthcare in the patient experience, in the patient-doctor interaction. So do you think compassion makes a difference in a patient's physical, mental, and emotional health and their well-being and even their ability to recover? Well, prepare to be blown away. Dr. Stephen Treziak is a physician scientist, chief of medicine at Cooper University Healthcare, and professor and chair of medicine at Cooper Medical School of Rowan University in Camden, New Jersey. His research has been featured in prominent medical journals such as the Journal of the American Medical Association and the New England Journal of Medicine, among many others. Currently, his research is focused on a new field called compassionomics, in which he's studying the scientific effects of compassion on patients, patient care, and those who care for patients. He is an author of the best-selling book, Compassionomics, the revolutionary scientific evidence that caring makes a difference. That book has already been featured in places like CNN, NPR, and the Washington Post. For this work, Dr. Treziak was awarded the 2019 Influencers of Healthcare Award by the Philadelphia Inquirer. And on a broader note, his mission is to make healthcare more compassionate through science. And I'm thrilled to have you join us. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast. Marcel, thank you so much for the invitation. It's an honor to be here. I've been looking forward to this. So we always start with a gratitude moment. And Stephen, for you, what, what makes you smile when you get up in the morning these days? Well, it's it's definitely counting my blessings amidst everything we're in the midst of right now, right? So we're in a in a in a pandemic that has taken uh, 180,000 lives in this country alone. We're in an environment in which so many people have lost their incomes because of the pandemic. 
and and compounding all of that we're in 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 an era where racism is causing civil unrest like we haven't seen in you know perhaps decades and all of those things put a they, they remind me daily that we're in a crisis but um it makes me so thankful for what i have and and i'm healthy my family's healthy i get to go to the hospital and practice medicine every day and that's a gift it's an opportunity i don't I don't have to go take care of patients. I get to go take care of patients, right? Yeah, and yeah. and I perhaps this time last year when all these different things are going on, I might take these things for granted a bit, but but not in 2020. Yeah, not, yeah. Not, not now. Mm, thank you for sharing that. So it's easy to assume that you're, by my introduction, a physician scientist, and we focus too much on the scientist part of who you are, but you're actually a doctor that's walking the halls, right? Tell us a little bit about what kind of doctor are you exactly? Sure, I'm an intensivist. So that's a specialist in intensive care medicine. Others might call it critical care. So if you become my patient, it's because you need life-sustaining therapies in the ICU. And one way that we sometimes describe our specialty is that we meet people on the worst day of their life every day. And but we're just the doctors, right? So the real heroes, in my opinion, and the people, you know, I, I always say that I learned how to treat patients from the textbooks and journal articles, but I learned how to take care of patients from the nurses. And so the nurses in the ICU are, are the ones that really inspire me the most, and as well as our technicians, and and you know, it's a team approach. But yeah, I'm, I'm um, an intensivist, so seeing patients in the, in the ICU at Cooper in Canada. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I can't wait to dive into the science of compassion and what you found as a physician. But, but first, there's a backstory to how you were inspired to focus on compassionate care and which then led you down this path of the research, right, on compassion mm-hmm. science. So it was a conversation you had with your son. Tell us about that. Yeah, I talk about this a little bit in the book. So for the first 20 years of my career in the ICU, I studied resuscitation science. So specifically, I was studying brain injury after cardiac arrest. And my colleagues and I were trying to find out the optimal oxygen level in the blood to try to protect the brain so that patients who were resuscitated wouldn't have permanent brain damage. And now I study compassion science. So it's just a bit of a change of trajectory of my research career. Just a bit. Just a bit. Now, I need to tell you that we're approaching it just as rigorously as we approached our resuscitation science research with the same sort of rigor in our approach, just focusing our efforts in a new way. And I want to assure you that I was not in the market for any kind of change of trajectory of my research career. So, for example, we were hitting every uh, milestone for quote unquote success, right? So we were publishing our work in some of the best journals. We were getting research grants from the NIH to support our research. I was being invited to scientific meetings all over to discuss our research findings. So everything was going as planned, but then an unexpected question from a 12 year old turned everything upside down and literally changed the trajectory of my life's work. So that 12-year-old was my son. And one evening, he asked me a question. And he asked me if I could help him prepare a talk for his class at school. And 
he said, dad, I know you give a lot of talks. Can you help me prepare mine? I said, of course, you know, what, what's your talk about? And so he reached into his backpack and he pulls out a sheet of paper and he lays it down on my desk. And on my desk is this piece of paper with the assignment. Okay, here was the question. What is the most pressing problem of our time? Now, Marcel, you're a smart guy. I, I don't know what you were doing in seventh grade, but I can assure you that I was not doing what is the most pressing problem of our time. That's, that's not the kind of assignment that I was getting. So I said, well, what you got? And he said, well, I've got these references and these photos and these slides. So I think I'm almost there. And what he picked wasn't, I wasn't buying it. And, and he said, and he was very frustrated because I wasn't buying it. He said, look, dad, I just need to get my assignment done. Okay. And I said, but do you really believe that this is the most pressing problem of our time? Because if you don't really believe it, I know you can tell this story, but if you don't really believe it, you're not going to convince anybody in your class. And so to his credit, he, he took some time and he thought about it. And he came back a couple of nights later with what he really believed was the most pressing problem of our time through his lens of experience as a young person. And what he picked isn't what's important. What's important is that he actually believed it. So he gave a talk that not only his classmates found compelling, but he did too. But for me, this set off a big period of introspection, or as my wife would say, a midlife crisis. So, so what, what, what is the most pressing problem of our time? Because what I was working on is important and it was meaningful to me. There's no doubt about it, especially if you happen to be one of the few people that, that suffer brain injury after cardiac arrest. It's totally meaningful. But is it the most pressing problem of our time? And what would our work look like if we actually believed it? And so through a, a series of a story that we don't have time for today, I can, I can tell you, I ended up coming to the conclusion that the most pressing problem of our time is a lack of compassion. And I believe that that transcends like almost everything that we're seeing in, in society today. But is healthcare different? And do we have a compassion crisis in healthcare? And if we do, then what are the effects? Because you can either believe that it matters or it doesn't matter. That's how we got on this new trajectory and testing new hypotheses related to the caring part of healthcare. Yeah, but let's be honest, though. You were a skeptic at first, right? I mean, you didn't think you would find anything. Well, that's the inner research nerd in me, right? Because <laughs> you always have to be agnostic about your hypothesis, right? Because if you've already concluded in your mind that it's, your hypothesis is true, then whatever you're doing isn't really research, right? So... My colleague, Anthony Mazzarelli, and I, Anthony's our co-president and CEO, and he's a, an associate dean at the med school. We decided to test the hypothesis that compassion matters. And we used a methodology called systematic review, where we systematically analyze the available evidence in the biomedical literature to test what signals we see when we curate data from literally going back five decades in the medical literature. What's interesting to me is that we obviously make the assumption, and I think it's a correct assumption, to say that caring for others is the right thing to do. I mean, you know, not just in healthcare, but in our workplaces too. That's just conventional wisdom. And now here you are, now you have the scientific rationale for compassion. So as you look at this mountain of data that you investigated, what was perhaps the most shocking or surprising thing you found? Well, the first thing we became aware of is that 
the data point to the fact that we do, in fact, have a compassion crisis in healthcare. So let me tell you a story. So on February 27, 2007, on a snowy stretch of highway outside of Uppsala, Sweden, two buses collided head on. One bus literally sheared the other bus in half across the long axis. And the extrication of the victims was so complex that it literally made itself, this case made it into the annals of a disaster medicine textbook. Six people died, sadly, but miraculously, 56 people were saved. And five years later, five years later, researchers asked the question, what do survivors remember? What do they remember? And using a rigorous qualitative research methodology, they interviewed all the survivors and they found two common themes in the data. The first was expected. It was the physical pain that they felt at the moment of impact. But the second theme was a lack of compassion from the caregivers at the hospital. But what's more striking about this study is when you realize that the victims were taken to multiple different trauma centers and they all had the same experience. And these data began to open our eyes to a stark reality. And there are multiple studies showing that physicians miss 60 to 90% of opportunities to treat patients with compassion, that compassion comprises less than 1% of physician statements to patients in an office visit. The median time of first interruption of a patient in an office visit with a physician, according to researchers from the Mayo Clinic, is 11 seconds into the statement of their main complaint. There is abundant evidence that now healthcare providers spend more time looking into computer screens than looking their patients in the eyes in the era of electronic health records and in the era of burnout, which was an epidemic in healthcare before COVID even hit our country or the world for that matter, that nearly half of physicians in the United States are suffering from burnout. And a key component of that is depersonalization and inability to make a personal connection. And based on all these data and more, we conclude that we are indeed in a compassion crisis. But the big question, the big question is this, does it matter? Does compassion really matter? Now, you might say, just as you were telling me, that of course compassion matters. It's a cornerstone of the art of medicine. We have a moral and ethical imperative to treat all patients with compassion. And of course I agree, and I've always agreed. But that's not the question. The question is, is this, is compassion just in the art of medicine? Yeah. Or are there also evidence-based effects belonging in the science of medicine? And what, what is the evidence? So really we're testing the hypothesis that compassion isn't just a nice to have, right? that it's literally part of the therapeutic relationship itself, and that they're not just, uh, that compassion just doesn't matter in, in, in meaningful ways, but also in measurable ways. And, and that was the hypothesis that we were testing, that compassion matters for patients, for patient care, and those who care for patients. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I have personally <laughs> experienced atrocious bedside manner myself by physicians mm -hmm. that don't even look at you in the eye. So I totally get where you're coming from. And so... Because you're a physician, it, this is so rare for me to talk to another physician who's done the science. Let's get into the psyche of the typical doctor. Is it that, that they know they're doing this, meaning that they're not connecting and paying attention, et cetera, but they don't care because of the overwhelming pressures of the job? Or is it just a blind spot? They just don't have the capacity for compassion or is it something else? So... There are studies which show quite clearly that people in general have blind spots as it relates to how they relate to other people. 
It's definitely true also for physicians who might believe that they're connecting in very deep, meaningful ways with patients, and from the patient perspective, not so much. In one particular study, there was a, a, a major discordance between the, the physician's own self-assessment of their compassion and the compassion from the patient perspective. But when you ask the nurse, who is a third party in the room, they saw it from the patient's eyes, not from the physician's eyes. So uh-huh. nurses always know it. And, and I always like to say that, you know, we wrote, a, we wrote Compassionomics where there's 280 original science research papers, you know, cited in the book. And nurses will tell me, well, duh, you know, so ner- the whole, the practice of nursing, the field of nursing is built upon this as a, it, 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 it's at its core. And so nurses know intuitively a lot of the things that we had to present 280 original science research papers to convince some of our physician colleagues, but nurses know it intuitively. And, and in fact, they like to make fun of me sometimes because, <laughs> because we had to curate all this evidence to convince people who should have known it intuitively. But yeah, f- uh, blind spots is a big thing. Perception of time is another. We'll probably get into that later. But the other thing is, is that you, you just have to realize that there is a robust evidence base. And that's why we wrote the book. Because surprisingly, the evidence, you mentioned these 280 original science research papers, hadn't been curated in that way before and pushed together or we pushed it together in a way to, to present the data so the reader can make up his or her own mind. But I think what you'll see in, in curating all that evidence is that there's an overwhelming signal that compassion matters. And so if you, if you think, it, it, you talked about the psyche of a caregiver, whether it's a physician, nurse, anybody, right? If you think compassion is just a nice to have, then maybe you're not going to invest yourself in the caring part of healthcare. If you believe it's essential to patients then and healing, then you'll probably feel quite differently about it. Yeah, yeah. So compassion definitely matters for improving the patient outcome. And there's numerous examples of that in the book. Can you talk through maybe one or two? How, how does it help the sure. patient experience? Sure. So there are really four different domains for effects on patients. And in the book, there are more than 100 papers that speak to patient outcomes. The four domains are physiological effects, psychological effects, effects on patient self-care. So how patients take care of themselves, like in the 99% of the time that patients aren't in front of their doctors. And then also just quality of care. So the data point to the fact that if you care deeply about patients, you're also more likely to be some, if you're meticulous about that, right, you're also more likely to be meticulous about the technical aspects of your care. So there are many studies which show that physicians that suffer from depersonalization, which is one of the cornerstones of burnout, they're more likely to make major medical or surgical errors in the next 90 days. And that the data there are association. It's not cause and effect. But one hypothesis that ties it together for me is we've probably all been in contact and experienced colleagues in the past that we think they just don't care very much, right? And we've also probably observed that maybe they're a bit sloppy about the work that they do, you know, whether they're in healthcare or something else. And similarly, I mean, this has been shown in a number of studies from investigators from the Mayo Clinic, 
that depersonalization is, a, is associated with major medical and surgical errors over the next 90 days. And in one of their studies, what they found is that the, those that had, were suffering from depersonalization were more likely to be cutting corners in their care. And so that's not to say that a lack, so first of all, depersonalization isn't an opposite of compassion, right? They're not opposites. But where there's an inability to make a personal connection, I would say there can be no compassion. Well, the research shows quite clearly that in that environment, errors, medical mistakes, they're more likely to occur. And so I always think about when you care deeply about patients, you're also probably going to care enough to be more meticulous than someone who doesn't really care. Mm-hmm. I want to expand on this, uh, this idea that compassion doesn't just benefit the patient population. You talked about burnout already. So let's expand on how the amazing things that it does for the people treating the patients, physicians, nurses, and other healthcare providers. We're going to unpack that after this quick message. Don't go away. Hey, leaders and managers, Marcel here. You probably already know this if you've been following the show. The question comes up often. What's the purpose of this show? What's the why behind love and action? Well, the simple answer, we need to eliminate suffering in the workplace and help leaders to flourish. Because when we have good leaders in place, the people under their care also flourish. That is really good for business. And by the way, as an extension of the podcast, I launched a leadership development course. It's got a catchy name. Check it out on my website. It's called From Boss to Leader. And in this course, I teach the skills that you often hear on the show. Things like how to communicate more effectively, how to engage your employees to put out their best effort, and how to build a high-performing organization. So check it out. I'm taking calls right now, and I'd love to personally chat with you to see if this course may be a good fit. Reach me on my website, MarcelSchwantes.com and click on virtual training. We're back. So tell us how compassion benefits not just patients, but also the healthcare provider. What are some specific ways that that happens? Sure. It, it really centers around this, this concept of burnout, which let me just say from the outset, you don't have to be a healthcare provider to feel burned out. In fact, the original description of burnout back in the 70s was in high achieving professionals, not in healthcare providers. But burnout is a, has three different domains. One is depersonalization, which we already talked about. Another is emotional exhaustion. And then the, the third leg of that stool is an inability or feeling that you have an inability to make a difference. And when you're going through burnout, and let me tell you, first of all, burnout is real. I've been there myself after 20 years of working in ICU and meeting people on the worst day of their life. I went through that, which we can talk about if you want to. But when I was in medical school, and this is the early 90s, when I was in medical school, I remember being taught, and I don't mean taught in a classroom, like the formal curriculum. 
I mean the hidden curriculum, the, what you learn through socialization in the medical wards of a hospital from your, you know, your peers and from you know, those that are close to you. I remember being taught, don't care too much because it might burn you out. Mm. And that stuck with me. And when I give talks about this topic, if there are people about my age in the audience, I get a lot of nodding. Like, I remember that, right? I remember that story. But it's just a story. Because when you look through the biomedical evidence, and we did that in curating all the evidence for Compassionomics, you see that burnout and compassion are associated, but it's inverse, inverse. So the preponderance of evidence in the biomedical literature shows an inverse association between compassion and burnout. If what I was taught in medical school, don't care too much, you'll get burned out. If that was true, it'd be associated in a positive direction, meaning high burnout, high compassion, low burnout, low compassion, right? There's inverse. So high compassion, low burnout, low compassion, high burnout. So some people want to just jump to the causation argument to say that burnout crushes compassion. But after going through all the available evidence, the predominant, the, the, the preponderance of evidence in biomedical literature, we see that it's much more likely that it's actually the opposite that's mm-hmm. true. So it's the people who have more compassion are more resilient and have resistance to burnout. And why is it? Because they connect more with patients. They get the benefits, like they, they get the, the good part of taking care of patients, the uplifting part of taking care of patients, like what it means to take care of patients. They get all of that. They get those benefits. So yeah, they have a stressful job. They either, you know, really hard work, super busy, high stress environment. Yes. But when they connect with their patients, that's building resilience in them and resistance to burnout. Whereas if you don't connect with your patients, then all you have is a super stressful job. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so the, the, uh, the preponderance of evidence in the literature suggests that compassion can actually be protective and perhaps compassion is actually an antidote to burnout for people who already have it. Wow. Okay. I'm going to summarize what you just said. And this is brilliant because I wrote it down in my notes to make sure that I quote you. And here it is summarizing what you just said. And I quote from the book, we've always heard that burnout crushes compassion. It's probably more likely that those people with low compassion, those are the ones that are predisposed to burnout. That human connection and specifically a compassionate connection can actually build resilience and resistance to burnout. So there are data, there are data, this is just healthcare. And, you know, I'm a physician scientist, which is code for research nerd. That was just my go-to, like I, I went to that. But there's data throughout in the psychology domain, way far outside of healthcare, that what builds resilience and resistance to burnout, resistance to depression, resistance to anxiety, are relationships. Mm. Relationships. So that's relationships with, in the healthcare environment, colleagues, relationships with everyone that's around us, relationships then with our patients as well. Because if we don't have those things and we're just on an island by ourselves, those are the people at the highest risk. It's, it's relationships that build up resources and resilience and resistance to burnout. Mm. Okay, can I uh, play devil's advocate here for a minute? It's your show. <laughs> so You can do whatever you want. <laughs> well, thanks for the... Uh, I, I wanted to ask permission. You're a doctor. Come on. <laughs> so it's a known fact that, at least it, it's my perception, 
that doctors are under tremendous time constraints. I have sat in lobbies of patient of, uh, of doctors' offices for an hour. The stress <laughs> is palpable in the in the room. So yeah. I can hear a lot of skeptic doctors and healthcare providers now objecting and basically saying, hey, who's got time to be compassionate? I got patients who've been waiting for an hour in the waiting room. So what would you say to those skeptics, many of them that are your peers? It's an important question because time is a very important factor in the efficiency and, quite frankly, economics of healthcare. There's no doubt about it. So let me give you a striking number. 56. So in a study published in the journal General Internal Medicine by researchers from Harvard University just a few years ago, they found that 56% of the physicians that they surveyed said that they don't have time for compassion. Think about that for a second. 56% said they don't have time for compassion. But it begs the question, so how much time does it actually take? So we went through the literature and we found five different investigations that actually measured it, like literally with a stopwatch. And what they found, actually, can I tell you about one study, for example? So a a randomized control trial from investigators at Johns Hopkins University set to answer this question in patients with cancer. And if the primary outcome measure for this study was patient anxiety. And if you've ever had cancer or somebody close to you has had cancer, you know that's a pretty important outcome measure. So what they tested in these patients that had gone through cancer, they tested in a randomized control trial, they tested a a conventional consultation with an oncologist where they were just given information versus an intervention with just a little bit more. So it was literally the same consultation, but on the front end and on the back end of this consultation, they tested this. And I could just describe it for you, but instead I'm going to read it for you. Okay. Okay. Here's a message from the oncologist at the beginning of the consultation. I know this is a tough experience to go through, and I want you to know I am here with you. Some of the things that I say to you today may be difficult to understand, So I want you to feel comfortable in stopping me. If something I say is confusing or doesn't make sense, we are here together and we will go through this together. And then at the end of the consultation, the oncologist said, I know this is a tough time for you. And I want to emphasize again that we're in this together. I'll be with you each step along the way. What they found is that this intervention had a statistically significant reduction in the level of anxiety among these patients that had gone through cancer. So how much time did it take? 40 seconds. So 40 seconds of compassion was all it took to make a measurable difference in the anxiety levels of patients who had gone through cancer. And when we looked at the totality of the data, there were multiple studies and all of them found that a compassion intervention, a meaningful compassion intervention takes less than 60 seconds. And that's part of the, the how, like how to be more compassionate. By the way, I need to have a disclaimer. I didn't do this at the beginning. You might think that because I wrote a, a book on compassion that I personally must be the most compassionate doctor. But the truth is I'm just a work in progress. Okay. But, but the difference is that I see it now. I see it now. So I'm working, hard, or I'm working really hard to get better at compassion every day. And thankfully, the science shows that I can. But 
the first step I mentioned is you have to see that there's an evidence base. We didn't talk about the physiological effects and the psychological effects and the effects on patient self-care. We don't have time to go through all that today. But once you realize that there's an evidence base for compassion, and then you realize that compassion actually doesn't take as much time as you actually think, and then the third part is really realizing that change is possible. But let's, let's just spend a little bit more on time. And so when I, we talk about compassion only taking 40 seconds, some of my most trusted colleagues bristle at that idea because they say, it doesn't take 40 seconds. It doesn't take any time at all. So you can go through your day with this brusque efficiency, letting everybody know exactly how busy you are, or you can treat people with compassion. And many people would say, if you held a stopwatch to it, it actually didn't take you any more time. And then the last part, if you want to talk about it, is the evidence that change is possible. Let's do it. So I used to think that you're either wired for compassion or you're not. That's what I thought before we curated all the evidence in Compassionomics. But what we found in going through all the evidence is a very compelling signal in the data that change is possible. So, for example, my colleagues and I, we published a paper last year in, in a journal called Plus One that curated all the evidence. It was a systematic review of all the compassion training programs for physicians or physicians in training. So anywhere from medical student all the way up to attending physician level. And what we found in those of the 54 studies that exist in the medical literature, three quarters of those studies found that compassion training in whatever form it took, it was heterogeneous types of training programs, but in collectively, 75% of the training programs found that they moved the needle in a positive way on compassion behaviors. And the key word is behavior. We're not talking about what somebody believes in their mind or what they're thinking. Or we're talking about how they behave towards another person. Compassionate behaviors increased. And, and oftentimes that was actually from the patient perception. So we actually can increase compassionate behaviors, but, but we have to want to. So mindset is critically important. And there, uh, if you're familiar, if, if any of your listeners come from an education background, one of the hot topics, so to speak, in education over the past decade has been the idea of a growth mindset. So Carol Dweck, from a, a scientist from Stanford University, and her colleagues found that if you have a growth mindset, meaning you think that intelligence is a skill, not a trait that you're born with, you're more likely to work hard at it. You're not going to let failures bother you. You just need to work hard and get better. When you think it's a trait, you're either smart or you're not, that you take failure very personally. You're less likely to try. And the evidence shows that people have a growth mindset where they believe things are skills, not traits. They work harder and they have more success. Their group actually studied this for compassion as well. And what they found is that people who believe that compassion is a skill, not a trait, are more likely to work at it and get better at it. Whereas people who believe it's a trait, you're either born with it or you're not, you're either wired for compassion or you're not, will never put in the work and they'll never try to get better and so they won't. So the evidence shows that change is possible, but you have to believe that you actually can. And, and so that's what I'm trying to get better at every day. Yeah. And you're, we're all doing it. We're all doing it. That's why we keep putting these out and creating content around this idea that it does work. And we have the proof now. And uh, you're in the middle of it. So we're all changing. And uh, I truly appreciate all, all of the I mean, amazing, amazing research that you have uncovered. So we have this tradition here on this show 
where we talk about love and fear, you know, practical love that results in what my guests talk about, in your case, compassion. And then there's its counterpart to what, what I call, you know, love in action, which is fear and how fear strips us of experiencing love, care, compassion. And yet fear is still prevalent in how organizations are managed, even though we have the evidence that says love and care and compassion lead to things like high trust, high performance, and business outcomes. So the question is, why do people still manage through fear and intimidation? Well, if they were evidence-based, they surely wouldn't do that, right? So there is abundant evidence, and now I'm going to step outside of my comfort zone in medicine, okay? And I'm just going to talk in general. One of the first thing that comes to my mind is just a wonderful book by Adam Grant from a few years back called Give and Take. There's just abundant evidence that when you, someone who either, whether you want to call it practices altruism, their core beliefs line up in such a way that they're always engaged in helping behaviors rather than taking behaviors, that they'll do better. And the reason why is they build up what some scientists have called idiosyncrasy credits, right? Like you build up credits where if you don't build up those credits with your colleagues at the minute that somebody can put a target on your back, they probably will. There's also evidence that people who, uh, I'm thinking of a study where kids in kindergarten classes who were kind to others, when they, when they followed them longitudinally, followed them up 30 years later, those that practiced helping behaviors in kindergarten actually made more money than those who didn't 30 years later. And so there's this true cost of cynicism or selfishness. It probably hits you in the wallet if you have a long enough time horizon. If your time horizon is this quarter or that quarter or whatever, it probably won't. But in the long run, there's just abundant evidence that helping others is good for your quote-unquote success. But when I think of success, I don't think about corner office, job title, money, or whatever. If you want to think about success in terms of just well-being, happiness, and fulfillment, the evidence is overwhelming that a life focused on serving others is way more important than serving yourself. But those aren't the messages that we hear now. We hear, you know, chase your dreams follow your passion. In that mindset, it's all about you. And it's actually terrible advice because the evidence overwhelmingly shows that people who are focused on self rather than others are more likely to be depressed and anxious and not have fulfillment and not be happy. So I think a lot about what do we teach our kids. I have four kids myself, and I've been as guilty of it as any other parent where if you ask kids, by the way, there's a, there's a lot of research on this. There's evidence that high schoolers and middle schoolers believe that parents value achievements and accolades more than they value their kindness to others. And, you know, I've been guilty of this myself, you know, hey, how'd the test go? Hey, did you win today? You know, th- those kinds of things, rather than like, you know, what are you thankful for? How are you able to help people today? You know, those are the things, if we really want to be evidence-based in how to help our kids find fulfillment and joy in their lives is not to focus on themselves and not to be selfish and not to culture of fear and all that stuff. No, it's actually pro-social altruistic behavior, helping behaviors and caring for others. And don't believe me because I said so. You should uh, believe me because science says so, because there are just, there's just abundant evidence in the scientific literature to support it. Yeah. Okay. So speak to the, the CEO or chief medical officer of 
of a hospital or even a hospital system? Now, this is a loaded question. So I'm, I'm not asking for a strategy, which will take another podcast episode. Sure. So really, if I'm interested in a culture of compassion in my healthcare organization, what would be the first step? Sure. So there is uh, abundant evidence on how helping behaviors can move through organizations like, I hate to say it, like a virus. So like actually a contagion. And I would have said that with no reservation if we were doing this podcast last year. I, 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 I'm reluctant to use that metaphor now, but there is rigorous scientific evidence to show that there can be a chain reaction of caring in organizations, a culture of caring. And one of the or two of, uh, and they, they sort of go hand in hand, most important elements of this are what psychologists would call elevation and just evidence on modeling and norms, right? So elevation is, some people classify it as an emotion, but it, it's a feeling of emotional uplift when you observe other people with either moral excellence or exceptional altruistic behavior, it makes you, it feels uplifting to you and it actually motivates you uh, and is associated with promoting uh, helping behaviors in other people. So, you know, I, I always say in, in my leadership styles, the three most important things is success are people, people, and people. So if you have the people that are going to be modeling behavior that gives other people elevation and, and that uplift of witnessing moral excellence, that's just going to be a chain reaction. And then to the point of norms, then at some point it becomes a norm because we don't just, Stanford scientist Jamil Zaki wrote in his wonderful book recently, War for Kindness, he wrote, we don't just respond to norms, we also create them. And so creating a norm of caring, but it does start at the top. Modeling is super important and there is no prescription other than modeling elevation and norms. And, and then th those are the key elements. Excellent. Stephen, our guests always close us out with that one key takeaway, that one thing you'd like our listeners to walk away with that will make a difference in their lives. So the messages that we hear today from success gurus, motivational speakers, and the like are, they go something, in my opinion, they go something like this. Chase your dreams, follow your passion, and in that mindset, it's all about you. And the evidence that we're curating now for our next project shows that that's actually terrible advice, terrible advice, because in that mindset, it's all about you, and it leads you to a focus on serving yourself rather than serving others. And so the best advice that I can find, and this wasn't a slogan or a t-shirt or a whatever, it's, it shines through in the scientific data. And my message to counter that and to be evidence-based would be something like this. Find the greatest need that you possibly can. Find the greatest need that you possibly can, and then go fill that need in service to others. And the science shows that that is much more likely to give you your true fulfillment. Mm. Mm. 
Stephen, I want to thank you so much for joining us. You are an extraordinary human being doing amazing work that is needed, especially now with everything that's going on today. So thank you for joining us. Well, Marcel, thank you so much for the kind words. First of all, thank you. I don't deserve them, but I appreciate them. And I just want to thank you for the honor of being on your podcast today. I love the message. You know, I, I, love, uh, I love your message and just hope that it, it just continues to resonate throughout the land. And thank you for letting me be here. Thank you so much. If people want to connect with you and learn more about you, where can they go? Compassionomics.com. There you go. The book is called, as he just said, Compassionomics. My special thanks to Dr. Stephen Treziak for blessing us with his wisdom. And thank you for listening and spreading the Love in Action movement. If this show made a difference in your life, will you kindly do me a favor? Just reach out to me on, on LinkedIn and let me know how it impacted you. I love interacting with my listeners. Finally, if you or your company would like to sponsor episodes of the Love in Action podcast, let's chat. You can reach me on my website at marcelschwantes.com or go ahead and hit me up on LinkedIn. This show has been produced by One Stone Creative. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks for joining us on the Love in Action podcast. If you enjoyed this show and want to help get the word out, make sure to subscribe and leave a review.